The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Which brings us once again to the urgent realization of just how much there is still left to own. Item six on the agenda, the meaning of life. Now, uh, Harry, you've had some thoughts on this. That's right, yeah. I've had a team working on this over the past few weeks, and uh, what we've come up with can be reduced to two fundamental concepts. One, people are not wearing enough hats. Two, matter is energy. In the universe, there are many energy fields which we cannot normally perceive. Some energies have a spiritual source which act upon a person's soul. However, this soul does not exist ab initio as orthodox Christianity teaches. It has to be brought into existence by a process of guided self-observation. However, this is rarely achieved owing to man's unique ability to be distracted from spiritual matters by everyday trivia. What was that about hats again? Oh, uh, people aren't wearing enough. Is this true? Uh, certainly. The hat sales have increased, but not peri pursuers. Our research initially. Enough. Enough for what purpose? Can I just ask, with reference to your second point, when you say souls don't develop because people become distracted, has anyone noticed that building there before? Good morning, London. It's Thursday, December 5th, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Not that wing. Just right. Good. <laughs> Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bed clothes, everything will be and welcome to the show, where 519-661-3600 is always the number you can reach us to join in our, in on our conversation on the show today, or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And during the second half of today's show, stay tuned for a breakdown of your broken-down hydro bill and the hydro bowl that goes along with it. And then I'm going to be dealing with Billy Gate Gruff, the real story behind the ombudsman and the anti-democratic mission he has set himself on. And I understand, Robert, you plan to start off the show by being frank about Pope Francis. Is that what I you've got do. in mind? I do. Yeah. I wonder if... What, uh, what precipitated uh, that? St. Francis of Assisi was ever called Frank. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what precipitated it was his... Uh, he just released his apostolic exhortation called Evangelii Gaudium. Translated just basically it means uh, joy the gospel or joy of the news, joyful news, and... While this is not to be taken as church doctrine as such from an infallible pope, it's supposed to be taken by Catholics as advice, given emphatically, hence exhortation. And this particular missive has been taken up by the popular media and criticized for its unusually caustic and direct attack on capitalism. Now, my reaction to, popes, uh, to the pope's communication is going to be much harsher. Uh, while the uh, intent of his document is supposed to be focused on evangelicism, evangelism rather, the Pope spends a considerable amount of time railing against not just capitalism as an economic system, but against science, technology, consumerism, profit, 
the media, freedom of choice, uninformed citizenry, individualism, the advance of Western culture, secularism, privacy, rational self-interest, and even life itself. All go under the gun in this new exhortation from Pope Francis. He's calling for sacrifice, even to the point of death, and an increased government invention, uh, intervention in trade. A well, that's a good way to lead to that end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's got that part right. And specifically, he actually mentions this specifically, a crackdown on tax evasion. Yeah. Ah. Um, in effect, he's, re he's asking for a return to a dark age, lacking in any comfort or luxury, and if his followers carried out his wishes in this letter, they would be the poorer for it. He's ahead of one of the oldest state institutions in existence, Robert. Sure, Let's face it. So Catholic why would he Church not be, be in favor? Yeah, it's all it's all it is. As a matter of fact, the he religion is, ahead of is state. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he is a sovereign. You know, uh, his you know, and he feeds off the poor. He's like um, Mother Teresa. Uh, news has been being slowly been released about uh, her life and times. Poverty is where the money is. Remember that exactly. Old statement, but yeah. not only that, Mother Teresa apparently reveled in watching other people suffer what? and enjoyed their misery. She would deliberately withhold um, care for people because God intended people to suffer. Oh, That's what I life know was many, all about. Many so-called Christians that do that. And yes. it looks as if Pope Francis is following in Mother Teresa's sure. footsteps. The poor will get poorer and the rich will get poorer if they follow his advice. It will lead to a a primitive tribal society lacking privacy, knowledge, science, technology, and most of all, freedom. The Evangelii Gaudium begins by lamenting the world's concern for consumerism and self-interest, and I quote, The great danger in today's world, pervaded as it is by consumerism, is the desolation and anguish born of a complacent yet covetous heart, the feverish pursuit of frivolous pleasures, and a blunted conscience. Whenever our interior life becomes caught up in its own interests and concerns, there is no longer room for others, no place for the poor. He goes on, Our technological society has succeeded in multiplying occasions of pleasure, yet has found it very difficult to engender joy. The joy of living frequently fades. Lack of respect for others and violence are on the rise, and inequality is increasingly evident. It is a struggle to live, and often to live with precious little dignity. This epical change has been set in motion by the enormous qualitative, quantitative, rapid, and cumulative advances occurring in the sciences and in technology. By the way, he spelled occurring wrong. Well. <laughs> and by their instant application in different areas of nature and of life. We are in an age of knowledge and information which has led to new and often anonymous kinds of power, unquote. So, apparently, we're all being distracted by the glitz of technology and information preventing us from seeking some sort of transcendence. Or to put it another way, we're all buying too many hats. <laughs> Much of the rest of the uh, exhortation deals with blaming capitalism and the markets for creating poverty. I'm not making this up. Well, I but it's true. Ca capitalism does create pro poverty because it creates wealth, and then the other part that, that, that's, that's not rich becomes poor. It's, it's and without relative. the wealth, you wouldn't have poverty. So it's, in that sense... No, no, no. Uh, uh, 
people might misinterpret what you just said. I know. When people become rich, it doesn't make another guy poorer. By relation to that person who has become rich, he is poorer, but his status has not changed one iota. Right. He can he too can become rich if he just applies himself or whatever does things that are necessary to become wealthy. It's funny there was an article in the paper that said stop blaming the poor for their poverty. I'm thinking nobody ever blames the poor, but but what's always going on is people blame the rich. Yes, right. And the rich don't cause poverty unless they've got a law in their favor that the government gives them a monopoly of some sort by which they get rich. Ah, then, yes. then they are causing poverty. Correct. And we've covered corporate yeah. corporate um, uh, well crony. Sure. Cronyism before Crony on this capitalism. Show. If you want to they... go to our website and just type in cronyism, it'll probably pop up in there. A couple of shows that we dealt with that around the time of the uh, uh, Wall Street Occupy movement. Uh, and it sounds just like uh, Pope Francis would have, would have been one of those 99 percenters, oh, yeah. even though he's the head of a sovereign state and probably one of the richest men in the world now. So much of this exhortation, as I was saying, was, was blaming capitalism and the rich and the markets for so-called creating poverty. And I'm not making this up. And, and when I went through this 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 letter, it's about 224 pages long. Um, I really had to shake my head. I couldn't believe what I was reading. Some of it, I mean, all of it, all of it. I started highlighting passages I think that I would disagree with. It turns out my entire document is yellow. Yeah. You know? I, I just this is a treasure trove for people like you and me, Bob, who want to see examples in writing of a false philosophy, a philosophy of death and destruction. But anyway, I digress because coming up now we have Michael Korn and Anthony Fury of Sun News, who recently had a brief debate on this Pope's letter. So let's listen into this, and when we come back, we'll take up more talking frankly about Pope Francis. Actually, having now read this document, which is, uh, must be, what, about 50,000 words, there aren't many changes. Uh, it, it's not spoken infallibly. I, I know many people will just reject that idea, but the Pope is infallible when speaking on issues of faith and morals from the, the, the throne of Peter, ex cathedral. It's not that, but it has to be taken seriously. I think that the major issues are about where power will be in the future, and, and some of the synods will have more local autonomy to a certain degree. But what has caused most fuss is his some would say rejection of capitalism. I don't think that's what it is. He speaks about unfettered capitalism and he has criticized the trickle-down theory. Uh, we're going to chat about this because I have maybe a different perspective from that of Anthony Fury who joins me from Ottawa. Anthony, oh, are, you, are you angry with the Holy Father? I'm not angry at anyone, but I am a little disconcerted to see that a, a figure as prominent and, and hopefully as wizened as anyone who holds a position of Pope would be is pretty much taken up some talking points of the Occupy neo-Marxist crowd. I've, I've read the document in full myself, and I disagree with your assessment. It's not unfettered capitalism, crony capitalism he's going after. He doesn't like the whole system. I, I, I really didn't get that impression, but I, I respect you very much. And if you, if you have that opinion, I, mean, I, I value it. I have it. the quotes to back it up. I don't have the opinion. I just have the words of the Pope. Well, give me I, a, wish, I wish he had said otherwise, but he didn't. Well, give me a quote where he condemns capitalism. Well, he says the socioeconomic system is unjust at its root, and he goes on to explain. And it would be one thing, Michael, if he was just giving moral guidance about keeping the Christian mainstay of, you know, look after the poor. I get that. Fine. But he says it's vital that government leaders and financial leaders take heed and broaden their horizons, working to ensure that all citizens have dignified work, education, and health care. Is yeah. it re really, really up to the government to give everyone 
dignified work. So, and, and there's so much more. He says, I have the unseen forces and unseen invisible hand of the market have failed. I mean, that's, that's free market capitalism at, at its most basic definition. I'm looking at the quotes that you probably didn't see, but they were coming up on the screen there. And it seems to me he's referring specifically to unfettered and trickle-down theories. Now, I, I think there's a context here, and I think this is where we may have, there may be a bit of consensus. I think the Pope is speaking from his own background of Latin America. Argentina, Peronist economy, it was never real capitalism. He's to, uh, Peru, for example. Peru is a good example. Uh, Peru, you can you imagine, well, you can think where, where Peru is. Its fish catch is vast. Um, they catch more fish, I think, probably than any, any other country on the continent. They can't feed all of their people because about 48% of the, of the fish they catch is exported to North America for cat food. Now, he would argue, I think, that's a failing of the free market. I would respond by saying, I don't really think that's the free market at work. Oh, I'd agree. That's not the free market either. And I think to add to your comments, I think his comments proceed naturally from being a Jesuit, first Jesuit pope, which I know is something sort of uncharted waters for bringing that philosophy to the position of pope. But, you know, I, I, I got to say, I, I'm also reading a, a bunch of stuff here where, you know, for instance, he, there's a beautiful paragraph where he says, in a culture, our culture, paradoxically suffering from anonymity and at the same time obsessed with the details of other people's lives, that's mm -hmm. the Twitter sphere and reality TV, shamelessly given over to morbid curiosity, what did Kim Kardashian wear today or eat today, the church must look more closely and sympathetically at others whenever necessary. Fine, fantastic. He is savvy with modern culture. So when he says things like, we need mechanisms and processes specifically geared to a better distribution of income, mm -hmm. he knows, he knows he's talking about the 21st century income inequality debate and siding with the extremist side. He's an in-touch guy. Yeah, I, I think you're playing a bit of a game here because you know... No! no. I, I have some... I think what he said about Islam was misplaced. Uh, some of what he said I don't agree with. But what he said about the economy, I believe in a mixed economy. I grew up in a mixed economy. I, I, could, I can be the person I am because of Britain's mixed economy in, in the 60s and 70s. I believe in capitalism. I despise socialism. But something in the middle where those who can't cope, that those who do need help, those who are marginalized, particularly in the third world, and you know he's reaching out in particular to the third world, we, I, we, I don't know that. It's an exhortation to the faithful. It's a call to action for the, all the faithful. Well, it is, but the people who are suffering most, and I think we'd agree on this, we have suffering in North America, but compared, compared to, to the, the, the suffering of Africa and Asia and Latin America, it is nothing. And free market economies is what's going to help them rise out of poverty. Since 1978, China, 500 million people out of poverty. And the Pope is talking like he doesn't acknowledge this. He's talking like he isn't aware of the history of Pope Benedict going to Cuba last year saying, hey guys, cut this communism out. And of course, Pope John Paul II, who I think did more for you know, many people in this world in the 20th century than you know, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher did in some sense. He was the spiritual. You're not uh, really implying, though, that this Pope is pro-communist, are you? I'm not implying he's pro-communist, but I am implying that, like, like the Occupy crowd, he makes a number of basic fallacies, mistaking crony capitalism for free market capitalism, thinking success is a zero-sum game, uh, you know, thinking equality of opportunity but, means Anthony, equality that, of outcome. That's, that's not what he's saying. And guilt by association. Look, I like Beaujolais, uh, Himmler like Beaujolais, <laughs> thus I'm a Nazi. That's a very dangerous game. <laughs> that's and, not and, the game I'm playing. Exactly. And you mentioned he's the free market. He's spelling this out the, in clear words. The free market, I believe, is a, is a liberating force, generally, but not always. India, 
I mean, India, so many people have come out of poverty, but this year, it was just announced two days ago, 8% growth, that's 4% less than they need to get people out of poverty. Things are failing there. A little bit of state impetus and intervention, just a bit, in economic areas is not a bad thing. Capitalism is like free speech. If there's ever a problem with either of them, the answer is to have more of them. I, I, I completely disagree with you there on that statement with India. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a completely no government guy. I'm yeah. a small government libertarian. And of course, we have very basic social programs to help people temporarily down yeah. on their luck. But when he says give every government needs to give people a job, it's like how we got people in social housing generationally rather than for six well, months when they I get back on their feet. That is I'm what very he's worried. Saying, but what, what, the, the best thing of all is we know where you live and the Inquisition will be knocking on your door in about an hour and a half. So don't Excellent. <laughs> and the atheist work camps are ready for you, my friend. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Take care. Bye. It's quite apparent that Michael Corrin doesn't really have much of a credible defense against Anthony Fury's contention that the Pope is preaching utter nonsense. And Michael Corrin, sorry, you don't believe in capitalism. You can't believe in a mixed economy, economy and capitalism at the I same time. I had the time. same debate with That's him on his own show. cake and eating it too. You can't do it. You're either pro-capitalist or you're pro-mixed economy. It's not. <laughs> the two do not mix, so to speak. And, and Anthony Fury is not playing any game. His, uh, he was quoting directly from the document. As a matter of fact, there are uh, 224 pages of quotes that somebody could do to actually uh, put forward Anthony Fury's argument that uh, the Pope is a socialist, raving socialist, and totally wrong in his viewpoints. Here's a quote from the, the Pope. Can we continue to stand by when food is thrown away while people are starving? This is a case of inequality. Today everything comes under the laws of con competition and the survival of the fittest, where the powerful feed upon the powerless. As a consequent, masses of people find themselves excluded and marginalized, without work, without possibilities, without any means of escape. The culture of prosperity deadens us. We are thrilled if the market offers us something new to purchase. In the meantime, all those lives stunted for lack of opportunity seem a mere spectacle. They fail to move us." Unquote. So while prosperity seems to be the goal of the Pope for all, whom he calls the marginalized or leftovers, Prosperity is also something which deadens us. Apparently being successful and prospering, which is most everyone's goal, robs us of compassion for our fellow man. There is, of course, no evidence for this. In fact, it's been demonstrated over the years that the most prosperous societies are also the most generous societies. Did we see any aid from Haiti going to help out the Americans after Hurricane Katrina? I don't think so. But did we see millions in aid of material pouring into Haiti from the U.S. when they had their devastating earthquake? Yes, we did. There is a direct causal relationship between the degree to which a society has a free market and capitalism and the well-being of its citizens. And all that money pouring into Haiti did no good because that country is still socialist. Yep. And you can pour billions in there and nothing will change. They It'll have still the be wrong dirt sandwiches. philosophy. Yep. If we're to take what the Pope is telling us seriously, I think it behooves him to show us at least one example of the lack of compassion he said comes from prosperity. Just one, please. But from a man whose entire metaphysics and ethics are based on faith, it should come as no surprise that we are to take on faith that which he asserts about capitalism being true. In the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, the Catholic Church, meaning the people, is to believe the Pope when he says that science creates violence. And he actually says this in here. Or that the media are responsible for the breakdown of the family. Quote, One cause of this situation is found in our relationship with money. 
since we calmly accept its dominion over <laughs> ourselves and our societies. The current financial crisis can make us overlook the fact that it originated in a profound human crisis. I put this in bold. The denial of the primacy of the human person. What? Yeah, I know. We have created new idols. The worship of the ancient golden calf has returned in a new and ruthless guise in the idolatry of money and the dictatorship of an impersonal economy lacking a truly human purpose. The worldwide crisis affecting finance and the economy lays bare their imbalances and above all their lack of real concern for human beings. Man is reduced to one of his needs alone, consumption, unquote. So once again, the Pope wants it both ways. Money is to be rejected and it has dominion over us, and yet he pleads for us to give our money to the poor. Uh, uh, always, always, always. Our preoccupation with consumerism uh. is evil, and yet it is evil because the poor aren't able to consume. So when the poor have money and are able to be Consume. consumers, be do too. they become the object of the Pope's derision then? Yes, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> it's a self-nullifying philosophy. There we go. A short definition for Pope Francis is in order. Money is a means of exchange. Nothing more, nothing less. You can't eat it, you can't wear it, you can't live in it. Money is not wealth. It has no power over us other than it is a unit of value we give to the services and products we can buy with it those same services and products which make our lives livable. Now, by inference, reality does not have, do uh, does have dominion over us. We can't deny reality. We must live in it and work with it in order to survive. And rather than the cumbersome and antiquated system of bartering, some clever dicks came up with the notion of a standard medium of exchange we call currency. It's a convenient method of trading value for value. Now, if there are corrupt bankers, businessmen, or politicians who are defrauding others and stealing the unheard, then those people should be properly dealt with. Yeah, and they're people. They're not money. That's right. <laughs> but to call for a better way to distribute wealth than a free market, then you're calling for the initiation of the use of force, Pope Francis. To put it blunt bluntly, the Pope is advocating violence. When he calls on the government an agency of force... To redistribute wealth, he is asking for government force to be used on people. He is advocating theft. How is this Christ-like? I've read the Gospels he speaks of, and I don't ever remember Jesus asking the Romans to tax the rich to give to the poor. For Pope Francis to do it is contrary to the teaching of Jesus. It's unchristlike. Quote, I ask God to give us more politicians capable of sincere and effective dialogue aimed at healing the deepest roots and not simply the appearances of the evils of the world." Unquote. In this he's talking again about the economic system. Of course he would not be the first pope to advocate the government intervention in the free and private dealings of honest people. Quote again, I encourage financial experts and polit political leaders to ponder the words of one of the sages of antiquity. Quoting, Not to share one's wealth with the poor is to steal from them and to take away their livelihood. It is not our goods which we hold, but theirs, unquote. That's a quote? That's He's quoting someone else. Oh, I, unfortunately, okay. I didn't write the footnote down, but um, he does a lot of quotes from um, uh, Pope Benedict. But still, he he relied on that. That's that's. that's in in other words, he's yeah. he's agreeing with this yeah. that not to share one's wealth with the poor is basically to steal from them. Unbelievable! What a load of hogwash! 
This is the fixed pie fallacy. And I swear, I really shouldn't have to be telling the Pope the most basic concept of economics, but he's clearly either quite an ignorant man, I'm sorry. He needs a moral concept. Or an immoral man yeah. trying to foment <laughs> dissent and revolution. And perhaps a bit of both. Ignorance and violence usually do go hand in hand. Now, there's much more in the Evangelia Gaudium, which I could hold up as evidence as to the destructive nature of this Pope Francis. I'll have to leave a lot of that for another day, and, I, and, and trust me, I really want to get into this more because what a godsend, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> 224 pages from the head of the Catholic Church basically laying bare his dark soul when it comes to an understanding of how the world really works. People trade voluntarily value for value and both come out positive as a result. Money is not evil. Money is the root of all good. I'm sorry, Mr. Uh, or Pope Francis. <laughs> I really don't want to call the guy the Pope because he certainly <laughs> has broken the mold when it comes to being so blatant I don't think he has. I think he, I think he fits right in with all the previous popes. Ayn Rand already criticized them profusely oh, yes. on the same thing. That's exactly true. the same thing. That's true, yes. But and I think that the language that he uses here, in including the misspellings, is quite um, a... No. A, um, a departure from the more couched language of uh, some of the prior popes, I think. Everybody couches their language when they want to do something that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to hear a lot of that in the second half of the show. That's why I say this is such a great treasure trove, because <laughs> he is quite blatant about using all the same bromides and same platitudes that the Occupy movement used in its railing against capitalism. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'll have to leave the, uh, all of this uh, for another day, but I, I'd like to encourage our listeners to read the exhortation for themselves. It is, as I said, 224 pages of pure gold from my perspective, as it is an excellent example of so much of what is wrong with the platonic philosophy of the arbitrary. And by that, we can ha have another show about what the arbitrary is. Uh, basically, to say there is a God is an arbitrary assertion, or that there is life after death is an arbitrary assertion, because there is zero evidence for such assertions. It's also a great example of the philosophy of sacrifice well, and altru faith, right? altruism. Those same philosophies which have caused so much poverty and destruction around the world. And as I said before, if the lay church follow the teachings of this pope in this exhortation, they can just basically wallow in their poverty forever because that's exactly what will happen. And with that, let's cut to the half the hour breaks. Michelangelo to see you, Your Holiness. Good evening, Your Holiness. Evening, Michelangelo. I want to have a word with you about this painting of yours, The Last Supper. Oh, yeah? I'm not happy about it. Oh, dear. It took me hours. Not happy at all. Is it the jello you don't like? Nope. Oh, no, they do add a bit of colour, don't they? Oh, I know, you don't like the kangaroo. What kangaroo? No problem, I'll paint him out. I never saw a kangaroo. Uh, he's right at the back. I'll paint him out, no sweat. I'll make him into a disciple. Ah. <laughs> All right. That's the problem. What is? The disciples. Are they too Jewish? <laughs> I made Judas the most Jewish. No, it's just that there are 28 of them. 
Oh, well, another one will never matter. I'll make the kangaroo into another one. No, that's not the point. All right, well, I'll lose the kangaroo. Be honest, I wasn't perfectly happy with it. That's not the point. There are 28 disciples. Too many. Well, of course it's too many. <laughs> yeah, I know that, but I wanted to give the impression of a real Last Supper, you know, not just any old Last Supper. Not like a last meal or a final snack. But, you know, I wanted to give the impression of a real mother of a blowout, you know? <laughs> There were only 12 disciples at the Last Supper. Well, maybe some of the other ones came along There were only 12 altogether. Well, maybe some of their friends came by, you know. Look, there were just 12 disciples and our Lord at the Last Supper. The Bible clearly says so. You see, I like them. They helped to flesh out the scene. I could lose Look, a few. There were know? only 12 disciples. I've got it. I've got it. We'll call it the Last But One Supper. What? Well, there must have been one. If there was a last one, there must have been a one before that. So this is the penultimate supper. The Bible doesn't say how many people were there, now does it? No. Well, no. they are then. Look, the last supper is a significant event in the life of our Lord. The penultimate supper was not. Even if they had a conjurer and a mariachi band. Now, a last supper I commissioned from you and a last supper I want. With 12 disciples and one Christ. One? Yes, one. <laughs> now, will you please tell me what in God's name possessed you to paint this with three Christs in it? It works, mate. Works? Yeah. It looks great. The fat one balances the two skinny ones. There was only one Redeemer. I know that. We all know that. What about a bit of artistic license? Well, one Messiah is what I want. I'll tell you what you want, mate. You want a bloody photographer. That's what you want. A bloody creative artist. I'll tell you what I want. I want a Last Supper with one Christ, twelve disciples, no kangaroos, no trampoline acts. By Thursday lunch, or you don't get paid. Bloody fascist! Look, I'm the bloody Pope. I am. Sorry I'm late. I thought you might not come. I know how busy you are. Well, the time of year and the nature of my business, it's important now that I use my time and opportunities wisely. Another idol has displaced me. <laughs> what idol has displaced you? A golden one. All your hopes have merged into a master passion, profit. The thought of money engrosses you. Perhaps I've become wiser. But I've not changed towards you. There's that idol of profit again, Robert. He must have just read the Pope's encyclical. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, before we proceed, I just want to make mention yeah. that that Monty Python clip of Michelangelo painting The Last Supper, that was actually called... Why Michelangelo didn't get the commission to paint the Last Supper? Oh, now we know. Because <laughs> of course it was painted by Da Vinci. Okay, just before we get all those cards. No, don't and send us a letter right. saying Michelangelo <laughs> didn't paint the Last Supper. <laughs> of course. Uh, now Vinay Sharma, who of course is the head of London Hydro here in the city, uh, was writing in the in the November 9th London Free Press quote to clear up some of the misunderstandings that exist about how London Hydro operates and how electricity prices are set. Now, of course, the real, it's not so much a misunderstanding as that people are freaked out about how expensive electricity has become in this province and will get far more expensive. 
But before I get into the breakdown of the actual invoice situation, I wanted to uh, highlight something that he said within that article. And it refers to our issue here, profit. He says, finally, let us address the profit that London Hydro earns yearly from its electricity distribution services. We have to be clear here that he's talking about only the distribution portion of your bill, which in his case, he says, only is about 18% of that total residential electricity bill. That's the only part they have control of. And he says, uh, London Hydro Inc. is a for-profit and taxable corporation with 1,001 shares issued to the Corporation of the City of London. Now, we've covered that before. And, of course, for-profit means taxable. Outside of income taxation, the company's profit status is almost meaningless because non-profits still require profits, but they call them surpluses, which is their word for a profit that you don't pay tax on. That's all it is. Now, he says, London Hydro has been able to improve its profitability and service levels year after year because of the hard work and diligence of its employees. Our employees have taken the London Hydro mission to heart every day they demonstrate their dedication to the pursuit of excellence in safety, reliability, customer service, and competitive rates. It is through the commitment and efficiency of the employees of London Hydro that we were able to reduce rates in 2010 or 2012 and 2013 and we will further be reducing them in 2014 end quote now understand what he's saying here he's saying that because of their profitability they were able to reduce the price of delivery in that time period he should write the, the pope a letter <laughs> explain to him exactly how it works For some reason i don't think the pope will listen what's that for some reason i don't think the pope will listen yeah now, even if true, this doesn't really help the low-income, low-electricity low users who are now faced with distribution charges completely out of proportion to their usage, usage charges. You know, in the old days, um, you just paid a certain rate, and if you used no electricity one month, you paid zero, or a very minimal amount just to keep your account active, or, or uh, a meter rental or something like that. But that has changed in the past years. Infrastructure and delivery was paid for through the pricing system earlier and charged on the basis of use. Therefore, those who use more paid for more of the infrastructure in the process. But today, that style of pricing system has been abandoned in favor of the upfront equalization of the delivery charge to all potential users, whether they use the power or not. And that's where we're at now. And that's caused a great deal of hardship, particularly for the fixed income and low-level power users. And that's just part of the money, sh money shock that people are using. Now, he gave a, a, a breakdown. I, I gave you a copy there of it. You see, notice you weren't too interested in it, <laughs> of how the hydro bill is broken I, I was down. just shocked yeah. over it. Pardon the pun. But, of course, he says uh, in, in his, he, he's looking at an issue of someone who consumes an average of 800 kilowatts per month. And he says the breakdowns accompanied, well, it's accompanied by a chart. And, and the chart shows that delivery from generating stations to London is 9.3% of the transmission charge. And from London Hydro within the city is 18.8%. That's the distribution portion. He says the electricity supplied is 52.2% of the bill. Regulatory 4.1, debt retirement 4.1%, which should never be there, and of course 13% HST, which represents 11.5% of the total bill. Now, these percentages are all self-referential. They're percentage of themselves, not of an objective price per se, based on 800 kilowatt hours. But this is not the reality that people are facing, especially the people who are conserving and cutting back on their use. 
And they're the ones who pay the most. And we've done this before. Here's, here's our last month's Freedom Party hydro bill, okay? Uh-huh. And it's, uh-huh. it's frightening how, how little power we use. Take a look at that. We, we even used less in the, in the following month. It's pathetic what we use there, Robert. And uh, it worked out to what? We had... Uh, 67, no, sorry, wh- where was the three prices? Yeah, you just took it from me there. Dollar twelve, <laughs> eighty-two cents, and a dollar eighty-three for a total of three dollars and seventy-seven cents. Yeah. What did we end up paying? Forty-six oh seven is the total, right? <laughs> and so that works out to uh, um, a huge amount. Like, I mean, it, I mean, in practice, the price paid by the customer, forty-six point oh seven, was what was paid for forty-four point two kilowatt hours, which works out to a dollar point oh four two three cents per kilowatt hour, not the seven to twelve cents that they quote there, right? And that seven to twelve cents, by the way, is already three times higher than it should be in an open market. Now. You can see the problem here. This is exactly where people are finding themselves in an issue. That whether they use it or not, you know, I, I heard all these people on, on some other radio stations this week cry in the blues about how they, they're turning off their lights and do, they're doing this. But we'll look at what they might be saving. They might be saving this dollar twelve. This, I mean, I could turn off everything at Freedom Party and only save three bucks. I'd still have to pay the rest. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not doing myself any favors. And you know what I figured out? I kid you not. It would, cheaper, it would be cheaper to run our office on a car battery seriously <laughs> even if you had to replace it every if three everything months. is dc of course well no you can with those ones you buy canadian tire oh, you, need you just the plug in yeah. yeah no I, i've got one had one oh, in my home whenever yeah, inverter yeah. yeah and they work beautiful your computer will run on it lights will run on it you just can't plug in something else that has its own battery in it you, mm-hmm. know, you know and um but other than that it would work fine and even if you had to replace the battery once every three months it would be still cheaper way Why cheaper because it's illegal. What? It's illegal. You can't rewire. Steve Orser was uh, um, was just on the on the air the other day talking about how even if you create your own power, you c- you can't use it yourself. You have to sell it to Ontario Hydro, run it back through the through the grid, and then they sell it back to you and charge you all the stuff. This evening. No, surely you're not saying that you can't bring in your uh, your battery with the inverter, plug in some lights in your computer. Well, you could, but not 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 the building. You couldn't put in the ceiling lights. Oh, You'd have no, to rewire okay. the building. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And and that wouldn't. You know, I don't think the landlord would be too pleased about the situation. I wasn't suggesting right. such an action. No, <laughs> but I'm just saying that's how bad it's getting. And it, it, you know, it's really funny. On a whole, the whole whole other issue again on the profit issue is the issue of um, how people think profit is a bad thing. Here's one fellow wrote a letter to the paper on, because he, he's seeing red with Heinz ketchup, and uh, writes letter to the editor contributor David Dufton in no- November 28th Free Press under the heading, It's About Greed, Not Unions. Uh, I guess he, him and the Pope could have got together on this. He's referring to a previous letter where Heinz is a lesson for unions, November 27th, where he pointed out the price sells and pondered whether or not we'd be prepared to accept a little less to have a job. What if we, the unionized people of this country, did accept a little less in order to keep our jobs? Would the prices actually go down? The answer is no. I think at the root of these plant closings throughout the years is profit. It's not that these companies weren't making a profit, they just weren't making enough of a profit. So they went elsewhere. He says, I don't think you're going to see a char- sharp decline in the price of a bottle of ketchup anytime soon. Well, 
I think he's confusing the consumer's mantra with the employees. Whether prices go up or down is, is really incidental, and I don't think they would. Prices generally stay stable and uniform in a competitive market. But profits, that's another thing. They change according to, to competitive issues. And the other thing about prices as well is that prices are not determined by what it costs to make something. It, they're determined by what people are willing to pay for something. End of story. If somebody's only willing to pay 10 bucks for something you spend a million dollars making, I'm sorry, it's only worth 10 bucks. That's it. That's how it works. And, you know, but what about the price of labor? That's the price that, that he should be concerned with. If Heinz went elsewhere to purchase cheaper labor, that is labor at a lower price, by what rationale would anyone suggest they pay a higher price? It doesn't make sense. And, uh, you know, I remember Paul McKeever so astutely observing back uh, when the Canadian dollar was only 60% of the U.S. dollar, Canada is just cheap labor, he said. Just cheap labor, you know, and he was right. As soon as the dollar went up, we were out of business because that's how the market works. I and went out of nothing, business. Yeah, you're one of them, yes. You were deeply affected by that. that. Trans, uh, you know, that um, ship stuff to the States, when the yeah. dollar went up, I had to close my shop. Yes, and it's not a moral issue. And nobody was it's out after you. It's, it's totally business, and, and that's the way it went. I mean, there's some morality involved in the decisions made at the mm -hmm. political level, but that's another issue. And that's what we're going to get into is another issue when we return. After this, I want to talk about, believe it or not, not Rob Ford, but the London situation still, the Billy Gates situation, and that's it, uh, the decision. 143, 144, 145... 146, 147, 148. Profits from the Ghana province are down. Mm? Are you listening to me? I said profits from the Ghana province are down. Down? Profits are down? Both of you leave me alone, can't you see? I'm trying to conduct business here. I'm sorry. Where were we? Oh, yeah, yeah. Pro profits are down. And what are we going to do about it? What are you looking at me for? As that idiot, Kafar. He's in charge of collections in the Ghana province. Kafar! You called, Great Sage. What is the 95th rule of acquisition? Uh, expand or die? He knows the rules better than you do. Elaine Roberts' brother owns Greengrass Landscaping. Oh, yeah. She gave him a no-bid contract to maintain all the parks and the medians the minute she got elected. He overcharges like Halliburton. But you got to love the flowering jacaranda trees he put out by the ball fields. And Tom Bender owns all of our school buses. Bought them from the town and then rents them back to us for twice what he paid, which was actually my idea. But he went behind my back and made the deal himself when Dan and I were on vacation in Hawaii. Where'd you stay? Four Seasons, Maui. See, I prefer the Kealani. Me too. But Dana likes the macadamia nut pancakes at the Four Seasons. You want another one? No, no. I should probably save that for the next council meeting. Oh, right. It's your vodka. Well, thank you for this. The 411. I never realized there was such a method your madness. Six years on a job and you learn how things work. Are you 
Heading out, too. Me? Are you leaving? No. Should we go out together? What? Not should we go out together, just should we go out together. Out of this office? Outside. Well, it is lunchtime. Out there. Want to try this new little Mongolian barbecue place before they go out of business? Careful there. Backroom politics in plain sight. <laughs> Could get in trouble. Amazing, you know. Who watches the watchers, I have to ask myself sometimes. Here are two epistemological and logical train wrecks passing for ethical judgment. Two columns that appeared in the Free Press in October and November relating to the complaints filed against eight of London's municipal councillors lunching together in a public restaurant are among the most reprehensible pieces of trash I've ever seen printed in that paper. I say reprehensible because they're so profoundly undemocratic and so profoundly anti-voter and anti-citizen, and yet they say they're speaking on our behalf. Glenn Morgan, professor of professional practice and ethics in the corporate communication and PR program at Fanshawe College, wrote a rebuttal in the November 9th London Free Press to a Herman Gooden editorial that suggested counselors getting together in informal meetings is not necessarily a bad thing. He quotes Gooden as saying that informal meetings are good because it offers opportunities to hear how other counselors think on those issues and broaden their understanding before coming to a position of their own. Morgan's ethical quote-unquote response, get this, I can't believe I'm reading this, and I quote, That might have been fine if the counselors who met on these two recent occasions in question were comprised of a diverse group. Huh? <laughs> huh? That's, that's exactly, huh? <laughs> a diverse group? Doesn't he mean a group of diverse counselors? I mean, a group is determined by its exclusivity. A group where no one has anything in common isn't a group, it's just a crowd, right? <laughs> Diverse on, on what grounds? Skin color? Political party membership? Think about that for a minute. I think it might refer to the fact of the Fontana, Fontana 8. Oh, yeah. Is that what it is? Well, yeah, but what, what, is, what is the lack of diversity there? Listen to this. They don't always agree. I know, but that's not the point. <laughs> not to these people. Unfortunately, there was already, uh, this is him writing, already an established voting block on city council known as the Fontana Eight, uh. a group that generally formed a united front on most council issues. For both informal meetings, the attendees came from that group. I'm going, what so? group? What group? <laughs> Again, he's defining this group. Oh, it's a non-diverse group. Which should have, if it had been non-diverse, rather, it would have been okay. Right, yeah. they should have gone out with or, their uh, opposition people, their enemies, so to speak, their political. Or should have been diverse, enemies? rather. Sorry, they should have gone out to lunch with their political enemies. Exactly, exactly. And he writes, it would have, it would therefore seem unlikely that those meetings were for the purpose of broadening understandings. Well, that's probably true, since they're already in agreement. You don't have any have to have any discussion. You already know which way you're going to vote. <laughs> On a provincial or federal level, this would mean that the conservatives can only lunch with liberals and not with conservatives. Right? That's what he's saying. Morgan then cites Gooden's reference to former Mayor Tom Gosnell, who, quote, stated that he used to encourage councillors to meet informally, as it was not illegal then, end quote. And he writes, admittedly, informal meetings are still allowable. Well, I'm glad he admitted that. Then what's all the rest of the essay about? Under certain circumstances, including no voting majority present and no significant advancement of council business. Andre Marin ruled it illegal based on a committee majority being present. The lawyers for the Fontana 8 claimed it was legal since no business was advanced. Regardless, 
they were only one person shy of a full council majority. The optics of that don't come across well, legal or not. Hang on. You mean they followed the letter of the law? Yeah. They didn't have a majority. Right. Then what's, what's the point? There isn't even any such letter of any law. Okay, it's just, just even by his own rules, he, he, it doesn't matter whether it's legal. He already said, you know, so the law is irrelevant. Now I get it. Morgan's subjectivism is the standard of behavior here. Uh. The reason he has to say legal or not is because the meetings in question have always been entirely legal and more to the point, not inappropriate in any way. They're totally appropriate. There may, he writes, there may be nothing wrong with a few counselors meeting informally to broaden their understanding of issues or to share ideas. A few, however, should only be a few. I would argue no more than three or four being being considering the current size of council. Like he's making this up as he goes along. Three or four? Yeah. Why not five? Oh, maybe five. Okay. He's still under that majority. Why not two? Hmm. Gooden states that motions that a counselor might bring forward as a result of such informal talks will still have to go to a public committee meeting, and if it goes beyond that, eventually to public council meetings. There, public and media can weigh in with opinion and comment. Again, he says, this would be fine after a meeting of a few counselors. <laughs> when you start to have six or more present, you could have a committee majority and be only one or two counselors away from a full majority. This is nuts. I, I, I can't believe I'm reading this. <laughs> if agreement was made prior to the public meeting, whether it's easier to pass a motion or not is irrelevant, simply for appearance's sake, he says, not for any legal reasons. But what if disagreement was discovered before in that meeting? Is that okay? Or what if, you know, what if it makes passing a motion in question harder rather than easier? Does that make the meeting okay? <laughs> and citing Herman Gooden's point again, he says, finally, there's a benefit of being able to say something potentially stupid in a private meeting and clearing things up away from the cameras. Again, he says, you can ask those questions in a small informal meeting of three or four people. You could also do some research on your own. When all else fails, politicians should follow the advice of Mark Twain and paraphrase, keep your mouth shut and appear stupid rather than open it and remove all doubt. Which he's just done. Yeah. <laughs> basically, <laughs> And basically he's telling... Our ele- elected representative to shut up and don't talk. Perhaps the real problem, he says, with Gooden's column is that he presents a reasonable argument for <laughs> informal meetings. But the Fontana 8 doesn't fall in that category. It was almost a majority, period. That's his argument. Almost. Now, you almost broke the law there. Watch it. There you have it. A completely incoherent... But there's no law. There's no law that says a majority or ten majorities can't meet. There's no such law. You just can't have a formal meeting. And you can't have a meeting without city administration being there, minutes being taken. Exactly. You know, I mean, it's when I was insane. on the board of Ed, yeah. we would uh, all gather there in the in the meeting room. You know, I forget how many. Was it 16 or so? And until the administrator came in and sat down, the meeting could not take place legally. It yes. was not a meeting until the administrator was there. It doesn't right. matter how much of a quorum we had. So, you know, this is absolutely nonsense because at the end of the day, all of those people are held responsible by the votes they take in chambers. Exactly. And then, of course, there's Andre Marin himself. Um, and he wrote an article in the October 22nd Free Press, Transparent Government Probes Goal. And, of course, he's the judge, the ombudsman of the Fontana 8. And his report is called In the Back Room curiously enough. Something right out of, seems like an old James Cagney movie or something. He begins his, well, I call it an editorial, with a quote from Madam Justice Louise Chiron, quote, the democratic legitimacy of municipal decisions does not spring solely from periodic elections, but also from a decision-making process that is transparent, accessible, and mandated by law, end quote. I agree with that statement entirely, but what does that cut? 
to do with his next point, I don't know. Quote, Before 2008, the Ontario Ombudsman Office dealt purely with provincial government matters and had nothing to do with municipalities. But when the province changed the Municipal Act to allow citizens to complain about meetings that are closed to the public, it made me the default investigator for the complaints, he writes. Then Marin brags about how this fits, quote, well, well in with our expertise, end quote, because, of course, they're in the complaint business. But again, what's that got to do with anything? It wasn't a meeting, no votes or minutes were taken, and it wasn't closed to the public. My understanding being that being seen in public was part of the problem. (laughs) 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 So they should have closed the door. I, I don't get it, right? And then he writes, it's no secret the Billy T's incident generated 60 complaints to my office, the most we've ever received for a single closed meeting case, although the number has no bearing on my decision to investigate it. Now, and yet he reports it. Well, of course. And I know from personal experience that's not probably true. Yes. In fact, in cases like this, notoriety is the key factor of the complaints the commission gets involved. I had this repeated to me so many times before the Ontario HRC when I defended Elijah Elieff. I loved it because it gave me a wedge to use against the complainant's case and against the legitimacy of the board's uh, investigation. Who cares about notoriety? Did he do something wrong or didn't he? Well, hump, 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 right? It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Does 60 complaints mean 60 complainants? Or two complainers complaining 30 times each? If this process is supposed to be so transparent, that's the first thing I want to know. Who filed the 60 complaints? By name, please. I want to know if they ever met in any kinds of meetings together before their record number of complaints were filed. Because that's exactly what happened with Susan Eagle and her band of United Church Merry Men who did their very transparent search to find a complainant in public against former landlord Elijah Elieff before the Human Rights Board. It's exactly what they did. They're all in the business of complaining and of complaints and very little justice and a lot of injustice. That's what they do, and that's what we, the tax payers are all being forced to pay for. So, you know, and he says he talks about how some on council made belligerent statements that suggest they don't believe the rule of law applies to them. Well, they haven't broken the rule of law. He means his rule, his authority. He's basically telling them, I'm your new boss. And he says the system is far from perfect. There are no legal consequences for those who violate the law, as there are in the U.S. I will have more to say about this in my upcoming annual report on municipal investigations, in which the City of London will again be prominently featured. In other words, I'm not a complete dictator yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> we need a watcher to watch our watcher. You better believe it. Who watches the watchers. And, uh, you know, he concludes his drivel with, the good news is, that the strong public interest these cases have generated in London is indicative of a healthy democracy. Now, uh, nonsense. In my case, my strong interest is based solely on the unconscionable opinions and actions of our so-called ombudsman. Ombuds out, buddy. Come on. I, I, I can't believe what I'm reading here. It's time for the city to accept and fulfill its democratic, uh, democratic obligations to a public which thirsts for open local government, end quote. And I'm going, huh? Again, by open government... He can only mean open to the mob and closed to due process, which is exactly the spectacle that's going on with Rob Ford and with our own city council. By the way, nothing new revealed on Rob Ford today. That's all old news. And I called it right, didn't I? Yes, you did. He's being blackmailed. Yeah, I said that months ago. I said that's what it's all about, and that's all we're going to learn. And, uh, you know, and I want to know what the city's got to do with it, too. He says, is, you know, like, isn't it the Fontana 8 who have to accept their democratic obligations? What's the city got to do with it? By their own admissions, both Marin and Morgan have defined the issues being between left and right, whether they like it or not, with the right again being declared unfit to govern unless in the presence of the left (laughs) and under the judgment of the left. Again, the same thing we see happening in Toronto. But here is the key. 
Final point. Joe Fontana and all of our municipal councilors are not the municipal government. They are our elected representatives on the corporation, which is run entirely by bureaucrats. In their democratic capacity, Joe Fontana, Bud Polehill, Paul Van Meerberg, and Steve Orser, etc., love them or hate them, they are us. They're you and me. They're not employees of the corporation. They're just paid by that corporation to represent us and just... And that way justify that corporation's right to exist as a municipal body. So I always ask our municipal guests whether they see the, the city as a business or a government, right? Open government is a BS term that can mean anything or nothing to anyone or anybody. The fact that a dictator rules openly and in plain sight of his victim does not democratically justify his actions. History proves it's usually a cause for condemning actions done in open government. When the self-appointed ombudsman says that counselors cannot meet with each other in any sort of public way, it's no different than saying that any citizens, especially those who think alike as a voting bloc, are allowed to meet with each other, whether that's legal or not. That's fascism. Plain and simple, both in theory and in practice, legal or not, open or not. Democracy, it's not. So between Ontario's undemocratic ombudsman in London and Toronto's municipal council's undemocratic coup of, of Rob Ford, government officials themselves, whether elected or appointed, it seems, are all working hard to assume the role of we, the voter. They're taking our place, and it's all coming from the left. Is it just a coincidence that the one consistency and the focus of all these attacks against the integrity of certain elected officials is that all those officials seem to be on the side of the voter? Isn't that interesting? Low zero tax increases, that kind of thing. I don't hear the big spenders getting accused, you know, for any of their bad habits. So there you have it. The circus continues. Rob Ford. Uh, are they going to release more Rob Ford tapes tomorrow at four thirty, like they originally planned, or was that what they did yesterday? Now I don't know the uh, intention. I don't know. It's too too bizarre for words. But um, stay tuned for more Fordian slips when we return again <laughs> next week. Until then, join us when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Jews and Christians are different. Christians spread the word. Some use bumper stickers. Jesus is king. The Lord saves. Jews don't do that. You never see a really nice car and great neck with honk if you love Moses on the back of it. <laughs> Does that work, converting somebody with a bumper sticker? How weak of a mind do you have to have? <laughs> Jesus is king? Oh. <laughs> I was on my way to Temple. Thank God that Winnebago cut me off. <laughs>